Coming up in this episode. And their glycemic variability, which is your swings in glucose, which is actually the measure that's most predictive of health outcomes. So that's what we ultimately want to keep the lowest is your swing. And how about their hemoglobin A1C or their fasted insulin? Those are relatively low on yeah, the lower end. Yeah. So it's still, yeah, their average glucose values are still 90 to 100 because they do lower when they're eating. And so A1C looks good because that's measuring your average. And then fasting insulin is good because it's this different type of insulin resistance, but their fasting glucose levels are high. They're not having any swings. So there's really no indication that this is necessarily a bad thing, just probably an adaptation because the body is now used to using fat for fuel and it's saving that glucose levels for the organs that are more glucose sensitive. And so you can kind of see this too, if you give these people an oral glucose tolerance test, which is basically basically just 75 grams of straight glucose and you drink it, they'll show diabetic levels. But if you give them 100, 150 grams of carbohydrates for about three days leading up to the oral glucose tolerance test, they'll have normal results. So that indicates that this is not necessarily a bad thing and it's temporary. But what I'll see is that these people will have cheat days every once in a while, like on a a weekend, maybe once a week, and they'll go kind of overboard with, you know, pancakes and oatmeal and syrup and sugary co coffees, like you said, and they'll have these glucose values. I wonder if that was what was happening with you, but they'll have these glucose values that'll be 200, 300 for hours, and they stay up there, and they're really hitting levels that are abnormal. And of course, if this happens every once in a while, it's not that big of a deal, but I'll see a lot of these people who have this physiological insulin resistance have these one meal excursions, often enough that's a little bit concerning. So I think that this is something important for people to recognize that I don't think that this adaptation is a bad thing as long as you're not going off the rails, so to speak, all the time, because you don't want these huge glucose excursions happening every time you have these sort of meals. Welcome to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. Hey, everyone. This is Jeff Wu. We're live from San Francisco, and I'm excited to talk to the Director of Nutrition from NutriSense, Kara Collier. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you're dialing in from Washington, D.C. Yes. Most listeners do not live in D.C., but we obviously see all the national response coming out of Washington, D.C. What's it like being in the Capitol? Yeah, it's pretty quiet, so it's hard to know what's happening indoors these days because everybody's inside. So streets are pretty empty, um, can't even go to the parks anymore. I was trying to read a book on a park on Friday, and police officer told me that I need to go home, so everyone's pretty trapped indoors at this point, but hoping things start to lighten up in a little bit. It's starting to feel like a new normal. Like let's hopefully be proactive here and realize that this is, might be like this for an extended period of time. And we got to just have new routines and, and try to stay sane and healthy and productive. Yes, definitely. We have to prepare for this to go on longer than we're expecting to. And while it's had a lot of tragic outcomes for some people, I think there's a lot of benefits to it. Just the fact of being able to be more in control of your time from working from home, um, being more in control of your food because people are now cooking more. I think there are some upsides, even though there's a lot of downsides. 
Yeah, I, I was just thinking about an analogy. It's kind of like an autophagy mm-hmm. of <laughs> just bad habits that we've baked into our everyday normal life. And now we have to essentially be in a forced starvation of all the things that we would normally do and rebuild structure and rebuild things. So I think I would say I'm definitely on the more fortunate side where, yeah, cooking a lot more and then just choosing where to allocate time. And it sounds like you're also in a fortunate spot as well. Yeah, I am. I can't complain. You know, things have been pretty good for us. And so just trying to work a lot and still stay healthy in a new way. Used to normally weightlifting and going to the gym. So that was the hardest adjustment. But it's a good opportunity to get creative with workouts as well and find a different way to still be active. So I definitely want to loop back into the lifestyle portion of that. But I do want to give a quick sense to our listeners, your background. I know on our podcast, some of the most popular topics are, is diet. It's mm-hmm. intermittent fasting, ketogenic diet, low-carb diets, and then some of the more exploratory diets like carnivore diets. Um, and obviously, we talk a lot about exogenous ketones and some of the different impacts of different types of macronutrients or metabolic substrates. But I would say that oftentimes we talk to either folks in academia, folks with medical medical degrees, folks who are more on the practitioner side as athletes or sports uh, performance ath- uh, coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's actually relatively uncommon for us to talk to a registered dietitian. So really great to have you, you know, come <laughs> on board here and, and talk to us about, I would say the exploding space of nutrition from a formally trained dietetics professional. Can you walk us through your background? It's a great time to be a dietitian, but I'm super excited about how much interest people are starting to take in their health. But my health journey and and background as a dietitian started in a pretty traditional clinical setting. So I originally was working in hospitals where most dietitians are, where you probably aren't hearing from them very much. And I was working in an ICU doing critical care nutrition. So mostly tube feedings and IV nutrition for people who can't eat by mouth. I was in the hospitals for a few years and extremely frustrated with my experience as a whole there. I was seeing so much suffering in the hospital for people not being able to live normal, happy lives anymore because of lifestyle-related chronic conditions that just got totally out of hand. So I was seeing them way too late down the road. People would come into the ICU with completely uncontrolled diabetes, and then we were having to amputate their foot or put them on kidney dialysis, and they're never going to get off. So extreme measures because somebody, you know, these people were not taking care of themselves early on, and there's lots of reasons that that happens, but the system itself does not support preventative health and does not support optimization of health. So my final straw with the hospital system, I had been working for months to try to remove sodas from the hospital trays. So patients were receiving these four ounce soda cans on their trays at lunch and dinner. Of course, that seems absolutely insane to be giving sugar to people who are trying to get better. So talking to anybody who would listening to me, the nutrition department, the board of directors, chief medical officer, and nobody cared. And that's when I realized I could not make a meaningful difference in the current system. So I had kind of jumped ship at that point and took a little bit of a non-traditional path for a dietitian. And I went to work for a nutrition software startup. So while I was there learning really interesting startup skills and you know how to run a successful business from the beginning and technology skills, but While I was there, I was really still thinking about all of these people I was seeing in the hospital system. 
um, this problem was really weighing heavy on me. So I really dove deep into the research about chronic conditions and metabolic health and what's driving all of this and how to address this problem I've seen that's so widespread and it's everywhere in the U.S. and worldwide are these same problems over and over. So I became obsessed with glucose. All things sort of started pointing towards glucose as this measure that could tell you so much about how your metabolism is working, how your metabolic health is, and then prevent these chronic conditions I was seeing. While I was at this startup, I was doing lots of N of 1 tests on myself, getting a glucometer, checking my blood sugar all the time, mapping out on Excel, having all these charts and graphs telling me what my glucose was doing. It's a lot of finger sticks. Yeah, a lot of finger sticks, a lot of unnecessary blood drawn. And then I came across a continuous glucose monitor. And it was sort of like this aha moment. For those who don't know, it's just a device that continuously measures your glucose so you don't have to be checking your finger pricks all the time. As a dietitian who had been researching this for a long time and has professional training in this area, I learned so much about myself. Even, you know, just that first continuous glucose monitor that lasts just two weeks, I still have behavior changes to this day from the things I learned in the beginning. So to me, it was just this aha moment of this is huge piece of technology that can help so many people that I was seeing back in the hospital. So jump ship again at that point and then started a company with two other guys. That's where I'm at now. I'm the director of nutrition at NutriSense. And what we're trying to do is use these continuous glucose monitors on non-diabetics to help prevent some of these metabolic conditions like diabetes, but also cardiovascular disease, dementia, kidney disease. All of these things are related to our metabolic health and glucose is sort of at the core of that. 100%. And I think that's where I think a lot of excitement in the future of medicine, future of health goes. It's really the marriage of the best practices from medical training, medical formal training, and with the best cutting edge of technology. I think you have to apply both mindsets and both, te both techniques to really get the best of both worlds. And I think when I put on a CGM for the first time, it is just super cool to see your own data in real time. And I think I probably had a similar aha moment like you where we're all systems, we're all we're constantly spitting out data, but mm -hmm. we don't really know how to track them. And we have so much more data output from our computers, our houses, you, you have all these historical records for all the things that you own, but the most valuable thing that we own, which is our bodies, if mm -hmm. you can say you own your body, we have like no quantified metrics on. Uh, and maybe you have like your blood panel, your lipid panel once a year or something if you're really on top of it. But I, I think admittedly, I don't think most people do that. And yeah. to get a uh, real time glucose meter, uh, tracking your blood sugar every five minutes and really seeing things move around when you drink that soda that you mentioned that they were serving at every single meal at the hospital. You can really tell how that's shifting your metabolism. Yes, um, absolutely. That, that just point that just struck me, uh, like I don't think the hospital board of directors or the folks who are running the nutrition program wanted to be malicious by feeding liquid sugar with soda with every single meal but why didn't they care like I, what was set up institutionally for that was okay like it's just surprising to me that you just don't just serve water or just serve anything else yeah. but you just you serve a sugar bomb yeah surprising to me too super disappointing um 
a lot of the feedback I was getting when I was trying to remove this was that they're using these four ounce cans, which are really small. But so they're like, oh, we're showing them how to do portion control. Like everything in moderation is sort of the archaic motto of the nutrition world, which I don't inherently agree with. (laughs) I think that we don't have to have extreme diets, but there are certain foods that we don't ever need even in moderation. And soda is definitely one of those. And particularly when your body's already not in great shape, you're in the hospital for a reason. People did not seem to register that a small amount was still bad and could still be detrimental to health. It just didn't connect that a little bit was was a big deal still. And even the hospital trays in general, um, what we call a diabetic-friendly hospital meal, and this is pretty universal across all the hospitals I was trained in and have worked in, is that it's, it's just about carb counting. It's not anything about carb quality. So as long as you have 45 grams of carbohydrates on the tray, it could be from fruit cocktail and from mashed potato, instant mashed potatoes and juice, and it's okay. As long as we're matching the carbs, and then we're going to match that with an insulin dose. And that's sort of how it's seen. And nobody really cares to think beyond that. Even beyond just the fact that carb quality, of course, matters, the traditional carb recommendations are also very archaic. So that's yes. kind of a double problem right there. But And then we're, we're treating it with insulin on top of it. So instead of actually treating the problem, we're putting a Band-Aid on top of it by just injecting them with insulin. So that's sort of where where the hospital's at, unfortunately. I think there are probably a few you know, some exceptions to this hospitals that are doing good things and creating healthy meals that actually benefit the patient, but it's not the norm by any standard. And then the other thing is, you, you know, you try to change what's on the meals themselves and make them higher quality, and then the patients don't eat it. And then that's the pushback you get is, oh, now we have all this food waste because you tried to make it healthy and nobody's eating it and now they're losing weight and they're malnourished. So it's it's also this balance of making sure patients are eating enough because you don't want them losing weight in the hospital. It's not the time to lose weight. Their body is under too much stress. And so it is that's also a balance you have to find. And, and that's a hard balance. Yeah, that definitely seems to be. In a, a challenging nutrition or diet diet challenge where it's a it, where if people are overweight or have metabolic syndrome you do want them to lose weight but you don't want them to lose weight necessarily when they're just coming off of a surgery and all of that so that's like a kind of an interesting delicate balance there and i think yeah. the the stacking of layers i think was a little bit interesting where it, they almost took it too literally where if it's 45 grams of carbs from pure table sugar or 45 grams of carbs from complex carbohydrates I mean, it, it's just well understood that your glycemic response for different mm-hmm. types of carbohydrates is very really different. Um, it just, but I, I guess in your practice, what your, your experience shown was that just people just didn't take that one very, very minor step down and just realize that the type, the, the form of carbohydrate <laughs> challenges the metabolism quite differently. It, it just, was it that, that lazy? Uh, yeah, it's that lazy. And and I do think Jeez. a lot of the pushback is that they think that people won't eat it if it's, you know, a healthier form of carbohydrates. Because, I mean, it is true. Majority of America is used to eating really processed and refined foods. And then when they come into the hospital and they want comfort foods because they don't feel well, when you serve them something that is not used, not what they're normally eating, uh, they might not eat it. And so there, there is that problem. I think in our circle, we're ex- we are used to people eating pretty healthy and whole food-based foods. But when you are exposed to the vast majority of people and what 
you know, everyone's eating in a hospital, most people are actually not eating that way at all. <laughs> Given that context that yes, there is that risk of either muscle wasting cachexia from just not eating enough, essentially a forced starvation. Mm -hmm. What would your implementation be with the realization that, okay, we don't really want to be feeding people their, their standard Western crappy diet to kind of double down on mm -hmm. a poor chronic lifestyle decision going in. We don't necessarily want to have them drastically change their lifestyle while they're in the ICU. Obviously, they're already in critical condition. So so I can see there's that balance. What is your solution if you have one that tries to bridge that gap then? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to come down to that we have to be purchasing higher quality food in the hospital itself. So taking a step back and thinking about what we're ordering, we're ordering a lot of just highly refined processed food, but it doesn't have to be that way. We can order higher quality food that people will enjoy. So higher quality proteins, most people enjoy proteins. That's something that's not quite as controversial. So maybe just cutting back on some of the carbs and having these higher quality foods that people enjoy. That's a budget problem for some hospitals. So it's finding that balance of what someone's going to eat and what's cost effective. When I was doing my training at the Memphis VA, actually, we did a lot of testing, trying to find a balance of what somebody will eat. A lot of these are older men, older veterans that are particular, like meat and potatoes. And so, you know, we were doing like turkey meatloafs, like simple things. And there are ways around it, but I think somebody has to be willing to be creative and test these foods. So it comes down to the hospital management itself and, and the type of foods they're ordering and then getting creative enough where you can make food taste good that's healthy, but you have to try a little bit and put a little bit of effort in it. You can't just order, you know, steamed frozen bro broccoli and put it on a tray plain and expect somebody who never eats any vegetables to suddenly like it. So I think if there was a culinary aspect in hospitals, like somebody who is actually trained in making food taste good, that that would go a long way. Your response, I think, is very reasonable. It's actually not that hard to make delicious, yeah. <laughs> not completely freaking terribly engineered to destroy your metabolism food, right? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's just a little bit of effort to not just consume direct yeah. corn syrup into your yeah. into your veins. I think there's just a few golden rules. Like it's like don't have flour-based items, don't have foods that have added sugars in it. Two simple rules of things you could do. And there's lots of foods outside of that that I think would make a huge difference. So 100%. So what drew you to glucose as an interesting metabolite to focus on. Mm -hmm. I guess my journey there was starting from fasting. And obviously, if you back up from fasting, uh, there's a lot of mechanisms of why fasting is interesting. But carbohydrate restriction is one of the major side effects or, or impacts of why fasting works, although you're mm -hmm. just restricting everything. Why were you doing a glucometer finger stick? Mm -hmm. I guess you could do uh, lipid panels or inflammation as a starting point. What drew you to glucose? True. Sort of two things. The first is that when I was doing research into this, it was the thing that just kept coming up. And the second reason is just the technology is there, right? There are continuous glucose monitors. There's nothing to continuously monitor my lipids, unfortunately, or my ketones, unfortunately, or insulin or any of that. So the technology is there. And if you're starting with a glucometer, it's really cheap and easy. 
But with glucose itself, um, I like to describe it as a vital sign, basically. It's, it's not just something that tells you if you're at risk for diabetes. It is a vital sign in the sense that it tells you everything about what's happening inside your body. It tells you how your food choices are affecting you, how your exercise is affecting you, how your sleep, your stress, everything. So it's like having a direct window into your metabolism. So we always need some glucose present just to maintain homeostasis. So that's a, a little different than ketones potentially, in that there's always going to be this normal level of glucose, this normal tight range, you know, 70 to 120-ish, depending on fed or fasted state. And so it gives you a good indication of what your metabolic health is because the body's working really, really hard to keep it, keep it in this specific range to maintain homeostasis. And when we're forcing it outside of this range, it can cause problems. And so when everything, all of our metabolic processes are working well and we're generating the right amount of energy, then that would be good metabolic health. And there's no harmful byproducts coming from glucose crossing these thresholds, whether up or low, it, it tells you a lot about how things are working at a very early stage. So glucose is one of the first things to deviate if there's any sort of issues with this metabolic system. It's helpful in identifying those yellow flags before they become red flags, because what I really wanted to focus on was preventative health and understanding how we can avoid these conditions that take 20, 30, 40 years to progress. And you can see that really early on with glucose, whether it's just the occasional spike and you can correct those behaviors that are causing that, or if you're seeing gradual trends upwards and you know you have to maybe take some more drastic changes to reset your hormones and get things working back in a normal homeostatic range. So it provides a lot of insight and it was easier. The technology is there. So that's always really helpful. Very rational one-two punch there. And I would say that most of our audience has a general understanding that high mm -hmm. blood sugar is bad, right? Like elevated blood glucose is one of the key ways to diagnose type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. We all have this notion that high glucose drives an insulin response. And as your body gets used to having higher and higher amounts of insulin, there's this notion of insulin resistance where you have to have more and more insulin to drive the same sort of response of insulin to bring that sugar back down into your cells. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a root evil, if you will, that drives a lot of the chronic conditions that is impacting our culture, our society today. And there's also just very interesting literature just recently showing that high blood sugar, type 2 diabetes is one of the most dangerous comorbidities with COVID-19, which is yeah. an interesting, maybe sub threat to discuss and talk mm -hmm. about. But before talking about the broader glucose, insulin, chronic disease, I want to just go into super tactical observations. One of the things that with your personal experimentation, and I think as with your role at NutriSense, you've just seen a lot of CGM data, mm -hmm. uh, continuous glucose monitor data. And I've definitely observed my own CGM data over the last three, four years. I was just doing some math. I started doing CGMs probably in the mid-2016 and experimenting with that. Um, I definitely have some, I would say, maybe like non-obvious or counterintuitive observations of how my body responds to certain types of food, stress, exercise, activity. Mm -hmm. Curious to maybe collect a basket of interesting observations just on the CGM data. Yeah, for sure. So there's so many where to start, but of course, food is what affects your glucose the most. 
And there was a lot of things that were really interesting. One that stands out particularly was just what you can see with a CGM versus a glucometer. So I remember testing different types of fruit with my glucometer and putting it in an Excel spreadsheet and seeing a graph. And I was doing pineapple, not that much, like a couple pieces and checking it before I started eating. It was like at 80. And then I checked it an hour after which is pretty standard. And it was at like 90 and then checked it two hours after and it was at 80. And so I was like, you know, my graph is looking pretty good. I was like, wow, I tolerate pineapple really well. That's surprising. It's high glycemic index. And then I did a CGM for the first time and tried pineapple. And really what was happening was it was going from 80 to 150 in about five seconds and then crashing (laughs) down. And then by that one hour mark, it was at 90. So I was having this huge spike. I think pineapple is the highest I've ever spiked eating it on an empty stomach. So that was like a huge moment where this whole time I was thinking that I actually responded really well to pineapple. And I was like, yeah, everyone says pineapple is bad, but I respond really well. And I was like, oh, no, wow, that was a huge spike. (laughs) Biggest I have ever seen. And then some other interesting... That's not that bad. 150? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think 155 is the highest I've seen. It was with pineapple and then like a sweetened coffee. So any form of liquid sugar, and this is pretty universal across the board, not just with myself, but with every person I've ever seen. A liquid sugar is about the worst thing you can do because it's basically already digested. It's extremely easy to absorb right into the bloodstream. I have to tell you like my story of when I was like, oh man, this is crazy. So I was on a cross-country flight to Boston, kind of a red-eyed, exhausted, and I felt like I I deserved a snack Mm because that was like the first leg of a trip to go to Europe. So I got a large Coca-Cola double Whopper fries from Burger King at Logan Airport and then had a delicious feast and then checked the CGM and it broke through like 300. I think it was like ended up at 330. It was like ridiculously high. I was like, holy. Okay. Yeah. And that was one of the last times I ever had like a giant Coca-Cola. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it just, yeah, that that thing itself is probably what, like 80 grams of sugar just in the big Coke. Yeah. And then, and you wow. have burger and fries. I mean, it was delicious. And probably my stress was, my cortisol was up, and probably my instant response wasn't that yeah, as optimal, and traveling. just being travel and traveling yeah. and all of that. So, but I think that was just like, that was for me just like That's the craziest insane, moment seeing my CGM day. <laughs> I've actually, I don't, I've never tried a soda. Um, I've experimented with almost everything, but I still can't get myself to drink it. So I should though. <laughs> but anyway, sorry for interrupting. I want to hear about the other fruits. I think that like people say that grapes trigger response, Great blueberries, a yeah. lesser... Yeah, I am curious. Yeah, let's. I love to like let's share some of this data. For out. sure, grapes and pineapple have been some of the highest for sure, um, and that's something I see a lot with everyone. Grapes and pineapples, for whatever reason, seem to be spike people really high across the board. Berries much lower. Apples pretty low. So fruit. I don't know if I've done a whole lot. Behind. Mango was pretty high. How about yeah. citrus? I think a lot of people are eating a lot of yeah. citrus right now for vitamin citrus C. Citrus has been low for me, for sure. Okay. Um, it's a lower sugar fruit, so it does make sense. Yeah. One thing that was interesting was oatmeal that I was doing. So I was trying to experiment with different levels of food processing. I was trying instant oats, rolled oats, and steel-cut oats. The difference was insane. I could not believe it. I retested it like 10 times to make sure. And doing it under the same settings and instant oats spiked me to about 140 and rolled oats was like 120 and steel cut oats was like 110. And so the difference between steel cut and instant oats was always about three, 
30 points difference, which I thought was pretty crazy because people are like, uh, in the end, you know, oats are oats, but processing matters a lot. So that was a big one of just seeing the difference between the, the level of processing in a food. It actually makes a difference. Like I know that's something dietitians say all the time, but seeing it is believing it for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Other, how about other common foods, uh, maybe on the protein side, like have you looked at different types of perhaps, you know, a steak versus chicken versus pork and mm -hmm. interesting observations on that front? Not really. Pr seems to be pretty leveled no matter what type of protein I have, um, including protein with some carbohydrate foods definitely lowers the response. So, you know, it's like the no naked carbs rule. Um, that's something we used to tell people all the time in the hospitals and I wasn't really sure if it actually made a difference, but it definitely makes a difference in myself and a lot of other people. So pairing some fruit with something like, like cheese or nuts or, you know, meat of any sort blunts that glucose response a lot, slows down digestion and the timing of what you're eating matters. So eating the protein before you eat your carbohydrate you're going to have a big difference between if you ate the carbohydrate first and then ate the protein. So carbohydrates on an empty stomach is just easier to digest, quick glucose response. But from the actual protein itself, I haven't seen any type of difference. Got it. Any other interesting observations from food? Something interesting that made me think of it when you were talking about flights. This is something that I have seen with almost everyone. So maybe this is more physical activity than food, but something about eating while on a flight while you're flying has this completely detrimental effect to glucose. So I see this over and over where people are, people's highest glucose responses will be when they're having a meal on an airplane. And granted, the meals on airplanes aren't always the best for you, but it's it's always way higher than what I would expect them to have. And I think it's something to do with you're just physically not moving while you are sitting there and eating. So you're completely immobile. And there's probably a part of dehydration when you're on a plane. Dehydration does increase your glucose levels. But that's always been really dramatic, like double the response of what I would expect just from being on an airplane. So I wonder if that played a role in your spike too, but. Yeah. I've just seen interesting other observations where I would notice patterns where if I just have a more stressed week, mm -hmm. my waking blood glucose would be higher than normal. Yes. And I think it's just due to your cortisol being up, releasing more blood sugar to kind of have a fight or flight response. Everything's kind of just going. One of the counterintuitive things at the time, at least when I was doing long fasts, my glucose would go up when you exercise, which actually kind of mm -hmm. makes sense if you actually understand that, yes, when you are exercising, your muscles demand more glucose to do the work and your your liver releases all this extra sugar to fill your muscles. So it actually does make sense, but it might be counterintuitive yeah. because people think, oh, like you exercise, it's going to like lower your energy, but your body's actually compensating by producing or releasing more energy. So that's kind of interesting. I've seen some data where if you do cold, it lowers the blood glucose, mm -hmm. so like a like cold, cold bath, an ice yes, bath. it does. Versus a hot sauna will elevate blood sugar. Any uh, like I, I think it's just kind of interesting to just like again just like throw some of these observations out there for folks who do a little bit more biohackery mm -hmm. experimentations to to get a sense of what people might expect. One thing I see over and over that I, I think is super important for people to know is meal timing. 
So the later we're eating our evening meals, the worse glucose response we're going to have, regardless of what the food content is. So I'll see a lot of people who are eating no carbs, they're following a keto diet, and they're eating at 11pm midnight right before bed. And they'll see a glucose increase when they'll eat that same exact meal at noon and no glucose increase. Our insulin sensitivity works on a circadian rhythm, just like our other hormones. And we're not as insulin sensitive at night because we're not meant to be eating in the middle of the night. And this is something I see over and over. And I've seen it in my own data, too. I don't know if you had any experiences like that. But those, those late dinners are can really impact your glucose values for a while. And so that's something I always really hone in on is eating within your circadian rhythm. Just a good rule of thumb is if it's light outside, it's probably a good time to eat. If it's dark outside, maybe not a great idea to eat. So it's just like an easy rule. But some other things, a big one is breaking a fast, whether that's just a daily fast or an extended fast. Um, I think it's pretty intuitive to break a fast carefully, but I think especially, you know, multiple day fast people are hungry. And then when they start to eat, sometimes it can be hard to control themselves. And I have seen a lot of people's data who, you know, they're very healthy, metabolically healthy, and they're doing a four day fast or so, and they'll break a fast with a relatively healthy meal, but they'll do it in the evenings. And then they'll have, you know, a couple, one person in particular, I'm thinking of who had, you know, a steak and some vegetables, and then a couple pieces of dark chocolate, but he ate it at like 8pm and then went to bed. And his glucose was elevated and fasting glucose to 120, which is would be considered diabetic levels for almost two days, we could not get it down. And it was just because his body really over responded to how he broke this fast. So I recommend breaking it during daytime hours, again, when your body is more sensitive to insulin, and then eating a smaller meal, just protein and fat, and then going on a walk, moving a little bit, you know, increasing your insulin sensitivity by activating your muscles, which is our a huge sink for glucose and incoming food, and then have a bigger meal maybe later. And try I would keep low to no carb for at least the first 24 hours after reintroducing food from an extended fast. So that's a mistake I've seen many times. And then yep, I think that's a really good tip there because I, I think yeah. the exact observation is reflected in the literature where you actually have a acute uh, insulin resistance yes. as you break a fast because your body's so used to basically using its own energy's fat stores. It's not expecting to pull down and, 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 and use that mm-hmm. pathway from insulin. So I made that first mistake when I was doing extended fast for the first time, just going crazy with like pancakes and all this stuff. I didn't like know the literature. This is like Were you wearing a CGM ago. at the time? Oh, okay. I, like, I did not, I did not have looked. a CGM at the time. And then it was just like food coma for like the rest yeah. of the day. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, there's, a million benefits for fasting. But one of the big ones is, of course, to lower glucose and lower insulin. And then if you overdo it, and then you're high for like two days, almost, it's kind of like, well, you almost yeah, it's it almost wasn't worth it in the first place. So I think we need to be really careful. If, If you're wanting these benefits from it, then you have to also break the fast well. Something that kind of reminded me of that as well is the response I see with this physiological insulin resistance in long-term keto-adapted people. It's kind of similar in that extended fast where you become a little bit insulin resistant. And so this is different, of course, than the insulin resistance you see with diabetes or other chronic conditions in that your insulin level should still be low with this type of insulin resistance. 
as opposed to with diabetes, your insulin levels are high and your glucose levels are high. But with this physiological insulin resistance, it's like a adaptive glucose sparing where basically the muscles are in this glucose refusal mode and they only want fat for fuel because that's what they're used to receiving. So I started seeing this pattern over and over and over with a lot of the clients I was working with and that they were having these, basically the hallmark sign of this physiological insulin resistant is a higher fasting glucose level. So they will see their glucose be about 100 to 120 sometimes fasting, which in traditional measures would be pre-diabetes, even diabetes sometimes. So of course they become a little bit alarmed, but their glucose levels are really stable all day and they even lower once they start eating a little bit. Mm. And their glycemic variability, which is your swings in glucose, which is actually the measure that's most predictive of health outcomes. So that's what we ultimately want to keep the lowest is your swing. How about their hemoglobin A1C or their fasted insulin? Those are relatively low on the lower end. Yeah. So it's still, yeah, their average glucose values are still 90 to 100 because they do lower when they're eating. And so A1C looks good because that's measuring your average. And then fasting insulin is good because it's this different type of insulin resistance, but their fasting glucose levels are high. They're not having any swings. So there's really no indication that this is necessarily a bad thing, just probably an adaptation because the body is now used to using fat for fuel and it's saving that glucose levels for the organs that are more glucose sensitive. And so you can kind of see this too. If you give these people an oral glucose tolerance test, which is basically basically just 75 grams of straight glucose and you drink it, they'll show diabetic levels. But if you give them 100, 150 grams of carbohydrates for about three days leading up to the oral glucose tolerance test, they'll have normal results. So that indicates that this is not necessarily a bad thing and it's temporary. But what I'll see is that these people will have cheat days every once in a while, like on a a weekend, maybe once a week, and they'll go kind of overboard with, you know, pancakes and oatmeal and syrup and sugary coffees, like you said, and they'll have these glucose values, I wonder if that was what was happening with you, but they'll have these glucose values that'll be 200, 300 for hours and they stay up there and they're really hitting levels that are abnormal. And of course, if this happens every once in a while, it's not that big of a deal, but I'll see a lot of these people who have this physiological insulin resistance have these one meal excursions often enough that's a little bit concerning. So I think that this is something important for people to recognize that I don't think that this adaptation is a bad thing as long as you're not going off the rails, so to speak, all the time, because you don't want these huge glucose excursions happening every time you have these sort of meals. So somebody who doesn't have this type of insulin resistance and their body's more used to having both glucose and fat as fuel will not have that high of a glucose response to a meal like that. So I think that's a tip that's important for people who follow a keto diet relatively long term to keep in mind. It's different than if you include like a moderate portion of carbohydrate foods every once in a while. That's not going to be as bad as if you have this whole full out meal yeah, carb huge shock. Of, yeah, yeah, huge shock, yeah. which I see like, you know, actually way more than I was expecting to. So that's an insight that I think is important for people to recognize is happening and be aware of and plan accordingly. So if you think you know, you're not gonna, you're not really that tempted by carbs, you don't really care, like, it's not a big deal, then it's probably perfectly healthy to have these higher fasting glucose levels. 
when you're keto adapted and you're not having any swings, probably perfectly fine. There's no indication that this is a bad thing, even though it may look like prediabetes traditionally. But if you are tempted by carbs and you go on and off and kind of swing around, it might not be the best thing for you then. You might want to just try a generally low carbohydrate diet instead. Yeah, I think that's a good point for people that get really excited and then want to have that cheat day. It's, it's unclear. Are, is that even worse for you than just having, a, as you mentioned, just like kind of a more mellow, low carb mm-hmm. diet that might not be as strict, like zero carb or ketogenic necessarily. As far as I know, the literature is open. It's like no one yeah. has done that kind of comparison study, but I think it's kind of intuitively and mechanistically, okay, you're definitely doing some sort of trade-off there. Uh, if you shock your system once a year, probably okay. But if you're shocking mm-hmm. once every three, four days or something, then that's doesn't look like a shock. It looks like a, almost like a chronic. Right back and forth. Concerning. Yeah. Yeah. And the research is open-ended on this. So we don't, we don't totally know. I'd be really interested to see a study done on this uh, because I think that it actually affects a lot of people, but some people seeing that high fasting glucose levels though, it really bothers them. You know, a lot of these people want perfection. They're looking for everything to be perfect and optimized. And so it really bothers them. And so we, I have been able to lower that fasting glucose level by just including some strategic whole food based carbohydrates. So like a normal small portion of some like sweet potatoes or, you know, berries, low glycemic fruit after a workout when you're really insulin sensitive. So you avoid any spike, but your body's getting used to every once in a while seeing a little bit of carbohydrates and they're still staying in ketosis most of the time. This isn't usually affecting them and their fasting glucose levels do lower with that. So to me, that's really interesting. Again, we don't know if how important it is to lower those fasting glucose levels in that type of person. But it's interesting to me to see that when we give a little bit of glucose at the right time, where it's not going to have any detrimental effect to what you're trying to achieve with your ketosis or your keto diet, then you do see these lower levels. So I almost think of it as you're maintaining metabolic flexibility in the sense that you're still teaching your body that I can use carbs every once in a while, I can use glucose every once in a while, but I can also run off of ketones and I can also run off of fatty acids and all these other different fuels. So that's where I ultimately evolved my thinking and my own personal practices exactly to that that phrase, metabolic flexibility. Mm -hmm. I I would say that like kind of level one, people understanding ketogenic diet, low carb diets, from a standard Western diet, it makes sense to have pretty simple rules to just kind of restrict carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. But as you get more nuanced into actually understanding the mechanisms of actions here and realizing that carbohydrate is useful for certain activities, right? Like for like a very anaerobic sprint, heavy lifting workout, or you want to maximize performance if you're a competitive athlete. Yeah, that little bit of carbohydrate is most likely going to boost your performance. And you talk to some of the low carb ketogenic athletes uh, that are, you know, kind of at the super top end that are setting world records at the Olympics, they might train or be in off season mm-hmm. eating ketogenic or low carb, but on race day, they'll be supplementing carbs along the way. So it's all about using the macros in the right way. And I think it's about ma- maximizing metabolic flexibility yeah. uh, and then being smart with the, with the, with the fuel, with the nutrition. Yes. Strategic is the big word here. I don't think carbs are evil, but I think that our 
general recommendations for American guide, you know, nutrition guidelines are completely crazy. Like 45 to 65% of your calories from carbs is way too much. I have seen very, very few people be able to actually eat that and stay in normal ranges. But I think that they can have a time and a place for a lot of people and things are perfectly fine. Um, yeah. One really important topic, and it's one of the most popular topics that people want me to ask and discuss is the variance between men and women with fasting with carbohydrate restriction. So different hormonal responses towards different types of nutritional challenges or, or nutritional interventions. Have you seen or, or have interesting thoughts on how either men or women respond to different types of carbohydrate restriction? Any interesting patterns and, and best practices and takeaways? If, if one takes it to on the extreme, I've had friends and community members talk about, you know, potentially shifting to hormonal cycles, for example, if, or a menstrual cycle on, on, on the female mm -hmm. part, where that's less studied, I would say, in formal literature, which is usually done on men. Yeah. And that's, I would say, like a downside of modern randomized yes. clinical trials, most studies are done on white men. Yeah, men or postmenopausal women who are no longer having hormone fluctuations. Yeah. Definitely. So I have seen yeah. a lot of variances specifically regarding fasting between men and women. So I want to preface by saying fasting is an amazing tool. What we describe as four pillars for glucose management to our customers. And it's, you know, what you're eating, physical activity levels, managing stress, which includes sleep, and then fasting. So it's one of our four pillars that we really emphasize because it has all these great benefits, you know, not just with metabolic health, but specifically with lowering glucose and lowering insulin levels. But I have seen some negative effects with some women. So when I first started this and I was doing research, like you said, it's, it's not very clear. And a lot of the research that's done with fasting is on men and it shows all these benefits. But then there were a lot of people speaking out about how we have to be careful about recommending intermittent fasting for women. And so I was a little nervous, to be honest, because I didn't want to recommend something as a healthcare practitioner that was going to then harm women. So I was treading really lightly when I first started this company and just recommending, you know, 12 hours of fasting a day for women and making sure that we weren't doing anything negative. But everyone was fasting in their own way. And there's, you know, we can have our guidelines, and they're still going to do what they want to do. So I was seeing hundreds of people starting to fast in different ways. And, you know, a lot of people do the 16, eight intermittent fasting. And then a lot of people do OMAD. And then a lot of people are doing extended fast. So I'm seeing variable responses and all of that. The good news is that I've seen tons of people now do a 16, eight fast men and women, and I've never seen anybody respond poorly to that. So glucose levels look good. You know, all the hormone values are looking good. They're not missing periods. They're not under extra stress. So that seems to be generally safe. And I wasn't totally confident of that going into this just from what the research says. So I now feel much better recommending a 16-8 intermittent fasting, especially if, if your eight hours of eating is aligned with daylight hours with your circadian rhythm where you're going to be more insulin sensitive. I feel comfortable recommending that to pretty much anyone. Where I saw a lot of difference was when we start getting into fasting that's a little bit more strict than that eight-hour window. With OMAD, one meal a day, um, I 
have very rarely, maybe if ever, seen any men respond negatively to OMAD. It actually usually responds really well, and glucose levels are super low, like you would expect them to be when you're fasting. You know, a normal response postprandially, and then it comes back to normal. But a lot of women, I would say it's like a 50-50 chance that Mm. a woman is going to respond negatively to an OMAD style of eating. So what you should expect is when you're fasting, your glucose levels should be low and you should be in the 70 to 90 range in your glucose. And what we're we're seeing over and over with women doing the OMAD style of eating is that it would, the fasting values would be low during the day and then they would eat and then it would stay high like at 100 to 120 for hours and sometimes through the whole night. And so that's clearly an indication that the body is under some stress, that we're putting too much stress on the body. So fasting is a hormetic stressor just like exercise or sauna or polyphenols. And it should theoretically make us stronger, but to a degree. So there's an upper threshold there. And it seems that women hit this upper threshold before men do. Like I said, there's this 50-50 chance that a woman will respond negatively to OMAD. So an easy way to test that is a couple hours after eating your one meal, check your glucose, you just check on a glucometer, and you should be in a normal fasting range. Similarly with the extended fast, who I always see a benefit in, whether you're a male or a female, is these metabolically unhealthy people. So maybe you have a high fasting insulin level, or you're really overweight, or you're in pre-diabetic level and you know fasting glucose is always kind of high. These people respond amazing to extended fast, particularly doing the 36-hour fast two to three times a week is, is an awesome intervention for these people. It works so well. It works better than any dietary intervention, any exercise intervention. It really seems to lower those glucose levels like we need it to, lower those insulin levels like we need it to, and kind of reset these processes that have gone awry. And so often when our fasting glucose levels are high, it's something's going on with the liver. We're pumping out sugar when we really shouldn't be. So we have to fix that. And those extended fasts work amazing for those people. Who it doesn't always work in are the people who are metabolically healthy to start with. And they're lean and they're normal weight. And then they're doing these extended fasts and it's too much stress. So like I said, I don't really see that very often in men, just like the research shows that it tends to be a pretty good thing for people and it stimulates all these positive benefits. But for women, it tends to be a little bit too much stress for some people. So particularly if you're lean, low body fat, if you're metabolically healthy, everything's in good order, especially if you're already under high stress, Um, women tend to struggle more with psychological stress than men. It's something we're talking about over and over with our clients. So like you said, you notice effects in your fasting glucose levels when you were under high stress. It's this normal stress response. When we're feeling stress, our liver is pumping out more sugar to help us deal with this. It's the fight or flight response. And that's normal. We want a good stress response. What's not normal is chronic stress where this is being stimulated all the time, cortisol is always high, and glucose levels are therefore always high. The number one reason for people that I see a high fasting glucose level is because they're stressed, and it's usually women. Um, I think we just have more of a tendency to ruminate or have (laughs) these effects of psychological stress. It's unfortunate, and maybe a little bit more of a type A personality with women. So they seem to be, you know, they hit this threshold earlier. And the extended fast and the OMAD style 
tends to start to have negative effects. And you see this in your glucose before you would start seeing it in like missed periods or thyroid dysregulation. So it's a nice, easy way to check if you're not sure, you know, maybe your glucose and your insulin is all in normal ranges and your normal weight and you're exercising a lot. So you're pretty healthy, but you want to do an extended fast for all these other benefits, longevity benefits. You can just check your fasting glucose level and see, because you'll be able to tell through that if you're overstressed sooner than if you're doing these all the time and then you're starting to miss periods. So it's a good first warning sign. But those have been the general insights I've seen, which is really helpful because now I know that daily intermittent fasting is pretty much a useful tool for everyone around the board. Um, There's still caveats with if somebody has like an eating disorder or they're really underweight or the pregnant lactating, still probably not a great idea. You probably want to be eating more regularly, but those are very, very small percentage of the population overall. Yeah. Well said. I think you cover a lot of the nuances and in specifics, I think is really applicable when people are considering applying or changing their own health Mm -hmm. habits. Because I think it is quite nuanced. And I think tools like CGMs give you that quantitative data, but like we should also not forget that end of the day, this is your life and you have mm-hmm. to feel good about doing it. So get the data. That's a very helpful tool directionally because you, you don't know if you're high blood sugar or low blood sugar usually. Um, but usually as people get more attuned to it, you can kind of get a sense of how you feel. And I think yeah. end of the day, it's how you feel on it and then the data and use those two things to kind of make life choices. Curious to hear more on the your, your personal choices. I mean, so like what makes the cut for your personal <laughs> bar? Obviously with the caveat that your goals, your genetics, your mm-hmm. epigenome might be different from mine, from everyone else's, but curious to get a sense of your nutritional habits, exercise habits, uh, maybe other more biohackery or interesting health wellness mm-hmm. practices that you've incorporated recently. Yeah. So how I eat probably doesn't fit into a nice bucket, but I would say generally low carb, um, probably normally about like 30% of my calories, 20 to 30% of my calories from carbohydrates. And I try to just eat real food, whole foods. I would say that's like my number one rule after seeing everything and all the different diets and research that comes out is just like eat real food, like eat whole foods and fasting. So I do a probably a six to eight hour eating window. And that was one thing from my original CGM. One of my original insights was I used to eat like every three or four hours, but still like maybe in a 10 hour window. And my average glucose was just never coming down to where I wanted because I was just kind of always in this fed state all day and eating these small frequent meals. And so now I eat two rather large meals a day during daylight hours. And I actually do eat in in accordance with my hormones. So um, this is, of course, another gender difference because men don't have these massive hormone fluctuations, but women do. Mm. So, and again, at the end of the day, we're all, we have different responses. Some women seem to be more sensitive to hormone changes than others. I am one of those people that am sensitive. And so for those people during the luteal phase, which is week three and four of the menstrual cycle, it's when estrogen is really low, progesterone is peaking. And that's when we see high glucose levels for a lot of women. Um, And right before that, you know, you have ovulation where estrogen spikes really high, and then it drops down. So in a 24 hour period, your estrogen levels can go from 
300 picograms to 10. So that sort of fluctuation in 24 hours is pretty insane. And any sort of hormone fluctuation to that level, you're going to see effects on your body. And so during the week three or four in the luteal phase, I eat really low carb, more of a keto style eating because I know my glucose levels are going to be higher and I'm going to be less insulin sensitive. Mm. And there's actually, you know, during that phase when your estrogen is low, you have less glycogen turnover. You actually have increased muscle breakdown. So I'm eating higher protein and I'm eating really low carb and I'm just trying to be careful. And that's also when you have cravings. And so I'm trying to suppress my cravings and, and deal with my physiology. You know, I can't control my hormone fluctuations, but I can control what I eat in response to it. So that's something I do. I sort of eat in a cyclical way in response to my hormones. And do you feel like that reduces your either physical or mental challenges that come with that hormonal flux or yeah I guess like does that make you feel like you're performing better I guess is maybe another way to put it definitely yeah I feel way better because those hormone fluctuations feel bad and the glucose fluctuations feel bad like you said one of the huge benefits of having this continuous glucose data is that you start to really enhance your mind-body connection it's really hard to feel those high glucose levels or the lower glucose values when you're not measuring it but once you start to see uh, that's, you know, I'm having these higher glucose values and this is how I feel, you really enhance that mind-body connection. And so now I'm very sensitive to it because I've worn so many at this point. And so yeah. I was becoming really sensitive to the fact that I was having higher glucose levels, which were still normal, but they felt high to me. I could, I can really feel it when they're out of what I expect and what is normal for myself. And so just having higher spikes from, you know, the same food I normally eat and then higher fasting and fasting glucose levels. So I feel better. I feel like my energy is more stable. Um, I'm usually getting into ketosis during that time and I feel good as opposed to feeling slow or just sort of um, like mood swings. I feel like I've been able to control my energy and how I feel by controlling those swings in glucose, that variability. So it's made a big difference for me. Um, I'll probably always eat that way now. And I, I wouldn't have known that information if you're not measuring it. Yeah, 100%. That's really important where, like you said, that knowledge is power, gain, you know, collecting your own data, validating your choices. There's so much noise in the nutrition world. And a lot of it, like I said, is, is the research might not even be done on women's, but it's all this noise of people telling you what to eat and how to do and how to live and what you should be doing. And there's so much noise. And so actually collecting your own data can help validate your choices. So you feel good about what you're doing. And then that also makes you easier to stick to your behaviors. So, you know, I used to have cravings during that period, but it's easier for me to stick to, you know, a stricter way of eating because I have that data to back it up. So it doesn't feel like yep. a meaningless choice. You know, it's like, it's more validated and that's yep. holds me accountable in a more meaningful way. So really drives behavior change. I agree hundred percent. I think you, you speak towards that very, very well. I mean, it sounds like you've done a ton of experimentation and just seen a lot of data to get some interesting patterns that I would say just aren't commonly known in literature or just in the discussion. But if you had infinite resources or there are other biometrics that you're curious to track, what would they be or what interventions or what experiments would you like to see done as people are evolving their nutrition, their exercise, mm -hmm. their stress against uh, biomarkers like glucose? I would love in like an ideal fantasy world where there's a tool like a continuous glucose monitor that also measures a bunch of other things. So you can stack this data on top of each other. 
it would be awesome if you could have a continuous glucose monitor that also measures insulin and ketones and triglycerides and cortisol. If I can have five things in one device, I don't know if that, that will never happen, but that would be so awesome. I think those would be the five metrics that I would want to pay attention to work- on a regular I think people basis. Are work- I, I, you know, just, I think people are definitely working on it. I, it's, it's definitely, I would say within 10 years, yeah. we will have, I think, our really great candidates for things to track continuously. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would love that because like I said, there's so much noise in the nutrition world and it's frustrating to see everyone jump ship every 30 days for the new trendy diet and it's not necessarily working for them, but they're still doing it because everyone on Instagram is doing it. And so if everyone could have access to these key metrics continuously and actually get feedback on what they're doing and build a plan that works for them, at the end of the day, I think personalization matters more than anything, then I think that would be amazing. That's that's my dream. Yeah, let's help make that future happen. Kara, this is a awesome conversation. I think you speak super well towards and, and have just the data and, and, and experience to back up a lot of the observations that I think our audience will find very, very interesting. Where do people tune in and follow your work in research and thoughts? Are you on Twitter? Are you on social? What's the best way to stay connected? Yeah, I'm mostly voicing my research and thoughts through the NutriSense platform. So um, on Instagram at NutriSense.io is where you can follow um, for me personally, not on social media as much, but you can add me on LinkedIn if you want to stay connected. And then NutriSense.io for our website if you're interested and in learning more about yourself and building your own personal nutrition plan. Super interesting conversation. Thanks so much, Kara. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit hvmn.com slash pod. Please remember to subscribe. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please give this video a like. And remember to hit that bell to get notified whenever we post. We also have a dedicated Discord server, which you can join by first taking a short survey. And then I'll personally send you an invite to join the community there. The link to that survey will be in the description along with any other relevant links. And we'll see you all next week.